Welcome to Impact AI, the podcast for startups who want to create a better future through the use of machine learning. I'm your host, Heather Couture. Today, I'm joined by guest David Goland, co-founder and CTO of VizAI, to talk about diagnosis of acute and emergent diseases. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. David, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to create VizAI? Definitely. So... uh... I've been in the AI space for uh, almost 20 years now in various shapes and forms and roles uh, from from startup companies to, to bigger corporations. Uh, I completed a PhD in statistics and machine learning in Tel Aviv University. So, you know, I, I did a, a bunch of very different things, uh, but it was all sort of centered around machine learning and statistics, data and numbers. Um, Prior to Viz AI, I was a postdoc at Stanford, Department of Statistics and Machine Learning, and working on applications of machine learning in genetics, genomics, healthcare, imaging, and, and other contexts. Where um, you know this was 2014, 15, I started uh, investing in learning and applying uh, deep neural networks type algorithms. Also starting to boom uh, at that stage. And while at Stanford, I met my co-founder, Dr. Chris Mancy, who's a neurosurgeon by background. And, uh, you know, through our shared interest and moving healthcare with technology, we, we joined forces and uh, founded VizAI. So what does VizAI do and why is this important for improving healthcare? Um, yeah, so, so basically what we do, our mission is to increase access to life-saving treatments. And our initial application was stroke. Now we're operating uh, in a much broader fashion. But stroke is, a, stroke is a big deal. So let's talk a bit about what stroke is and then how this plays, uh, uh, how this helps with a stroke treatment. So in ischemic stroke, uh, ischemic strokes account for about 90% of all strokes. These are caused by a clot, an occlusion of a blood vessel in the brain, preventing the normal flow of blood and oxygen to a part of the brain, which rapidly deteriorates and dies in an irreversible way. So, you know, someone with a stroke may lose, uh, you know, complete control over one side of their body, of perhaps the ability to speak and so on. It's a very, very dramatic condition. It's the number four or three killer in the Western world. And it's the number one cost, the number one healthcare expense. So it's a huge, huge, huge public health uh, concern on top of the personal uh, and family tragedies that are involved. So huge deal, a very, very time sensitive condition, right? We have uh, amazing therapies, uh, mechanical thrombectomy, uh, where a, a, a neurosurgeon would maneuver a, a, a catheter, essentially a small plastic tube, through a small incision in the groin all the way to the brain to remove the clot. So they're literally unclogging the, the pipes. Um, and they can really help patients if they get to them fast enough. So it's, as I said, probably the single most time critical condition in all of medicine. Every minute of delay of the therapy results in about 2 million dead neurons a bit over four days of disability and over a thousand dollars of additional cost to the healthcare system. 
So this is one minute of delay. Uh, so this is all of the background for, you know, the, the numbers and the problem that is stroke care when Chris and I started to look into, into it. Um, and then, you know, our, our audience might ask, well, if there is a treatment, then what, what's the problem? Why is this still such a big deal for, for healthcare? And if you look at the numbers, you see that most patients either don't get the treatment at all, or get it with very significant delays. And there are many, many reasons for delays, but these are basically um, due to long, linear, sequential, human-based escalation processes within hospitals. And so the way, the way this works, a patient shows up at the, at the ED, they're being triaged, they're taken with a scanner, the result needs to go to the radiologist who would later send the you know, the interpretation back to the ED, the emergency physician would need to contact neurology, they would need to look at the scans again, maybe, you know, consult among themselves, then get in touch with a neurosurgeon. Neurosurgeon might be at a different hospital, so now they need to somehow transfer all the data to the neurosurgeon. It's just, it's a, it's a very, very long process. So imagine that a patient, you know, gets a scan, and it might take anywhere from two to three, you know, up to three, four, even five hours from when the scan was done to when the right doctor sees the scan for the first time and makes the clinical decision. And again, every minute goes by is super critical, two million dead neurons, four days of disability and over a thousand dollars of, of you know, wasted uh, healthcare expense. So, you know, we, we sort of double clicked on that and, and really dove into why this is happening. And we realized that there is a huge opportunity to transform how these processes are being managed because they were relying, as I mentioned, on serial human-based error-prone processes. So the vision of this AI basically says, let's turn this whole thing on its head from a serial process to a parallel process. Let's connect all the hospitals to the cloud, have all the imaging, all the scans streamed to the cloud in real time, where a machine learning module can identify stroke and now even you know more acute pathologies and alert all the relevant team, the entire relevant team, whether it's the ED physician, the radiologist, the neurologist, the neurosurgeon, the anesthesiologist, the stroke coordinator, everybody, it could be 20 people at the same time. They all get an alert on their phones. So wherever they are, they can get the data immediately. They get the scans, they have communication tools that allow them to, within a couple of minutes, communicate among themselves, circulate the information, make a decision, inform everybody on the decision, and essentially, you know, go, 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 let's meet in 20 minutes in the OR. Uh, so this is basically this is basically what we do. This is the vision, uh, the vision behind VZI, and what we 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 do for stroke care and now for additional uh, additional conditions. So which pieces of that does machine learning play a role in? Certainly, analyzing images and determining whether there is a a disease needs to be treated there. But are there other pieces in that pipeline that you just walk through that machine learning assists with? Uh, so, so mainly uh, machine learning mainly sits at the, the detection part, where scans come in and we detect 
whatever pathology exists, strokes, brain bleeds, pulmonary embolisms, aortic dissections, and so on. These are powered by AI, by machine learning modules. Um, outside of that, there's a lot of technology, but it's not, it's not machine learning. So, okay. you know, backend, mobile, and all, and all that stuff. So how do you ensure that the technology your team develops will fit in with the, the clinical workflow and provide the right kind of assistance to doctor? Because it, it's not just the, the diagnosis piece that the machine learning assists with, with but the whole pipeline is needed for, for this for this technology to, to help with healthcare. Yeah, so I, I think you're spot on. And one of the things that is sort of core to the VIZ philosophy is that you know, AI or machine learning module is not a product. A product is a much broader thing where AI may play a role. So from our perspective, um, and, and you know, by no means, I, I don't claim that Viz was the first company to apply AI to, to radiology and to, to scan, to imaging scan. By no means, there are other companies who were there before, but most companies prior to Viz where, as you said, essentially, you know, we will build a, 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 we will build a module, we will get the scan, we will interpret it, and we will return uh, return the result to someone, and they will know what to do with it. This came with a very different concept, which basically said, we need to understand the clinical problem really, really well. And we've done so with you know countless interviews and countless of hours and days of shadowing clinical teams. And one of the things that we learned, for example, was that in the context of stroke, in the context of acute care, we have to deliver the information to a mobile device and not to, you know, back to the radiology department because the decision makers, the neurosurgeons, the neuroradiologists, the neurointerventionalists of the world, they are not sitting at the computer all, all the time. They may be on call for seven weeks, uh, for, for seven days a, a month, and during the time they are, you know, they're asleep, they're at the supermarket, they're, you know, the kids' soccer, they're driving, they're not at a computer. So, you know, we need to be able to detect stroke with machine learning, but we also need to make the data accessible through a mobile device. So, you know, from day one, we developed a mobile app, and that is, to this day, our single and most important interface for the user. And, you know, without a mobile app, the power of the machine learning would be uh, very much diminished and vice versa. So it has to be a much, like, we, you need to solve a problem. We need to solve a problem. We need to understand the problem very well. We're not coming to educate them and tell them how to change their ways. We are uh, watching them, understanding their pain points and understanding the problems and designing the solution. Part of the solution would be uh, leveraging AI. Other part of the solution would be leveraging other things. So, um, you know, despite the fact that we have AI in the name of the company, we don't see ourselves as an AI company. We're a product company, a clinical workflow company. This is our job to accelerate uh, accelerate workflow. And, uh, and I think, by the way, if I might say so myself, I think this approach was novel and it is to this day very novel. And this has been the reason why the Viz product was very, very attractive and adopted by 
you know, over a thousand hospitals to this day. And B, the reason why it is very effective, and we have numerous clinical validations, publications, and, and, and so on, demonstrating that implementation of the system actually delivers faster care, better outcomes for patients, and improve economic, improved economics for the hospital. So let's come back to the AI component it, itself for a little bit. Machine learning models are most effective when they're developed with an understanding of the underlying data. How do your machine learning developers collaborate with, with domain experts? So, I mean, in the very early days, the team was very small and we would, we would just spend a lot of time with doctors understanding the, um, you know, understanding the scans, how to read the scans. Um, nowadays, as the, as the company grew, we've established within the AI division, we have what we call uh, the clinical AI team. And that started, it started as a, essentially an in-house annotation. We would have med students in the fifth or sixth year uh, doing annotations. But as we grew and we started working on more and more projects, we actually started integrating that team as part of the development teams and the development process. So there would be a person with relevant medical background who's really part of the team, and their job is to a, be a, you know, an expert in the medical background, clinical background, in the imaging, really work closely with the, the AI developers, uh, have really short you know, feedback loops. They can ask questions. They look together at false positives or false negatives and understand and, and understand and refine and redefine what it is that we're actually after, how, what, what annotations or segmentations we should do. So nowadays we have like in the AI department, we have the clinical AI team. It's actually the largest team uh, at Viz AI. It has med students, it has uh, qualified MDs, it has people, it has people from um, biomechanical engineering background or neuropsychology or neuroanatomy background. So all sorts of backgrounds. The uh, people who understand the clinical side understand enough of the AI uh, process to work well with the, the AI engineers, and we form these very holistic teams um, for, every, for every new project. Yeah, I imagine that that tight collaboration that you have set up there is very important to, to creating effective models. Oh, to... it's, it's, it's absolutely critical. It's absolutely critical. It's, uh, I totally agree with you. you to, to be effective in developing machine learning models, uh, you have to understand the data and in medical imaging, you know, more so than, than probably in other domains, there's so much variation, uh, whether it's in anatomy or the technical characteristics of the scan. Um, it's really not something that you can, that you can treat as a black box. So one of the, the largest concerns with AI right now is around bias models. How might bias manifest with models trained on medical data? medical images in particular? So I, th I think the biggest concern is that uh, a specific mod model might have lower performance or a different performance profile on a subset of the population uh, in, in a way that is unknown to the developers, us, and to the users, the clinicians. 
right? If, for example, a certain age group or a certain ethnicity group uh, do not get the same accuracy and therefore miss out on the opportunity to benefit from a, from, from a device, uh, at the very least, this should be known, right? It, it, ideally, the developer uh, would work to eliminate uh, a discrepancy like that. But at the very least, it should be known and should be part of the labeling. So what do you, what do, you do about it? Are there some strategies your, your team is taking to, first of all, identify that there is a potential bias there and, and then potentially to correct it if possible? Yeah, so I, I think we can we can split the answer into into two parts. First of all, uh, you know these are medical devices, so everything has to go through the Food and Drug Administration, aka the FDA, and part of that uh, process is designing a pivotal study where data is collected ideally in an unbiased way. Um, for example, from hospitals that serve multiple ethnicities. And part of the submission, we, we need to hit various performance benchmarks and also provide both to the FDA and also to the users various stratifications. So for example, the performance of a certain algorithm for uh, you know, males and females or for different age groups. This is all, first of all, given provided to the FDA, but also made available to the users. So that, that's one thing. We have we have sort of an external entity uh, that ha- establishes requirements that we need to, to hit. Uh, and the other thing is, of course, internally, we monitor ourselves very, very carefully. Like we care a lot about the performance of our algorithms and we care a lot about, um, you know, from my perspective, a, you know, discovering some sort of a, a consistent anything that affects performance in a consistent way, once we discover it, we can address it. Right? So it's actually a very good strategy for improving uh, performance. Right? And it doesn't have to be biases of the type that we're talking about. So imagine, for example, that we discover that um, you know, our performance on GE scanners is 95% and on uh, Toshiba scanners, it's 90%. Right. We now have a very good strategy for how we improve our performance. We would collect more data from uh, Toshiba scanner, we would annotate it, we would retrain our models and so on. So we invest a lot of effort annotating data and doing this stratification analysis to identify uh, and A, you know, make sure that, that the algorithm is performing as expected. And B, if there are any covariates that predict low performance, that's that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity for improvement. Uh, And definitely we've found, as I mentioned, uh, specific scanners where the performance might be different. We've found specific uh, technical characteristics where um, performance might be different. And uh, we've also, just as an example, found that, that, you know, older patients might have slightly lower performance. And then it's just, sometimes it's not a problem in the model, it's just that uh, the older we get, first of all, the brain becomes less, uh, the brain change changes in various ways. And people, if, if someone has accumulated multiple strokes over their lifetime, it becomes a harder problem. So you know, not all uh, performance issues are biases. Some of them can be explained in other ways, but it's definitely something we're 
constantly looking for, um, you know, on top of the desire to make sure that the algorithm is fair, we also want to make sure it's, it's, it's providing the most accurate outputs. Yeah, that, that the validation step is really important there and yeah. everything you mentioned in order to understand the performance and its weaknesses so that you can improve it and so that you can more importantly just be aware of how it's doing. And uh, So you, you touched on the re regulatory processes a, a little bit there with when you mentioned stratified metrics. I saw that you just received FDA clearance for a seventh AI algorithm. So you clearly have a, a process internally that works to go through the, the FDA clearance process. How does the regulatory process affect the way you develop machine learning models? So it, it definitely, it's definitely, you know, a big part of the process. Um, now that we're sort of a, a bigger and, a, you know, not really well organized company, uh, you know, things uh, start with uh, with uh, with a market need, with product saying, you know, this is what we need. and. Uh, then we're discussing, like I said, sort of, uh, three circles. There's a circle of what the market needs, what the users needs. There's a circle of feasibility, what engineering can build, and there's a circle of what we can clear with FDA, right? And and we are um, looking for the intersection. Like we're looking to find something at the intersection that we can build, we can clear, and still deliver value. Um, Right, because you can't just make any claim. Like, the stronger claim you make from a, from a medical perspective, the higher the regulatory bar is. So it it definitely means that first of all, we need to very carefully define what the product does, right? To so make sure that and, and validate that that would be enough for the users, and not and, and validate it, that it would not create uh, you know challenges with the FDA. And the second thing that as we develop, there's uh, you know a parallel track of designing the the, the pivotal study that I mentioned, the study that is going to be performed uh, and and submitted to FDA to support the claims and the clearance, and that is sometimes it might be a challenge in terms of the consideration. How are we going to sample? Where are we going to sample from? How are we going to oversample uh, specific subsets? How are we going to make sure that you know all the variations are represented in in the data so that our certifications are meaningful? Those are all considerations. So typically, uh, you know, we assemble sort of uh, teams or squads around these products, and then. You know, there would be a couple of AI folks working on developing the model, a data person working on collecting data for them, plus uh, working on uh, um, collecting the data for the FDA study. It has to be separate, right? We, we don't want the, the developers are not exposed to the data that is uh, quarantined for, for the validation. We work with external parties to create a ground truth. It's also, it's a good question. I mean, I mean, it's not always clear what what is ground truth. Sometimes, um, looking at a scan is not enough to establish a ground truth. Sometimes you need to have access to the medical records. Sometimes we have three, five, or seven, you know, medical experts who are blinded to each other and to the results of the algorithms, ground truthing stuff, so we can 
create a gold standard and benchmark the results of the algorithm. So there's 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 definitely a lot of of uh, uh, of considerations. The teams are heavily involved in the submission process, creating some of the documentation, creating the, the you know anything from the statistics of uh, you know powering the study to describing the way the algorithms are designed and trained. FDA asks a lot of questions about that. They sort of want to build the confidence that uh, the company, this in this case, uses good machine learning practices. It helps them uh, build confidence that the results would be generalizable and the algorithm would perform uh, in, in, in all circumstances. So it's definitely a very engaged, very interdisciplinary team um, has a regulatory person, has AI data, clinical AI experts, all working together uh, to get this through. In the early R&D phase, it's less about the regulatory. The more closer you get to submission, it becomes more about that. And that's, uh, that's basically, I guess, the long and short of it. Okay. Is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of AI-powered startups? Yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, some, some lessons learned, uh, I guess. Uh, I, I would invest in a very good annotation and monitoring infrastructure from a very a very early point in time. Thinking about and it, it it changes from from context to context, but understanding very early what the algorithm or what the product needs to do, how to measure whether it does that, how to either get feedback from users or from your own annotators. And have the the loop where you can extract the issues in the, for example, false positives and false negatives. Inspect them, annotate them, add them to your training. Um, good ways and convenient ways to evaluate. Uh, your, you know everything that essentially sits under the, nowadays. I guess the title MLOps. Uh, you know back in when we started this, we didn't have that. Uh, the jargon yet, but I think investing in that early, very early on, would reap tremendous benefits for for any ML, any startup that where ML is a is, is a big component. That's one thing. Um, you mentioned domain expertise. I would definitely invest in that, regardless of your domain. Uh, invest in creating a team that that is an expert in that. It's not something you can outsource. I guess these are the two big things. The third thing that I would say, and again, it, it's context dependent, but it's worthwhile to mention. So Andrew Eng recently, you know, coined the term data centric mm -hmm. uh, instead of a model centric uh, learning. And the reality that you know, I'm seeing in this and many many other startups, most of the time, like relatively simple architecture would take you a long way. It's really much more about the data. Right? So Enrang has the thing where he says, let's fix the model, fix the architecture, and change the data, and you know, train the same architecture but with different data set. And that I, I, we have found to be very, very true. We found that deep understanding of the data, intimate understanding of the data, good inspection of the different false positives, false negatives, different training regimes of the same 
architectures with different data sets has a bigger impact on performance than uh, or fancier or bigger or deeper architectures. And this is somewhat counterintuitive. And you know, this would be my advice to, to leaders in, in startups. As you are recruiting people, make sure that you're not recruiting those people who just want to implement the newest, fanciest, flashiest architecture that was just published because it's cool, but those people who are willing to roll up their sleeves, get dirty with the data, even if the architecture at the end of the day is, is simple, and they are excited about making things work and about the product and not necessarily about the latest and flashiest publication. That is, I think, in most contexts where, where success would come from. Those are all very helpful points. And finally, where do you see the impact of VizAI in, in three to five years? So, uh, first of all, we're seeing huge impact right now. As, as I mentioned, Viz is in over a thousand hospitals. We're analyzing uh, a patient scan every 28 seconds now and alerting on strokes four or five or six times every hour. And the impact, as I mentioned, you know, up to 90 minutes time savings, three and a half days of, this, of uh, hospitalization, uh, shorter hospitalization, up to 40% less disability at discharge, and up to 20% more patients treated. So we're actually seeing in the stroke space, very, very, very nice uh, impact, very impressive impact on healthcare systems that implement the product. Now, basically we're trying to replicate that in other acute care verticals. Uh, I mentioned brain bleeds, pulmonary embolisms, and as we're covering more and more, essentially, you know, I don't know how many, uh, but a, a significant part of imaging uh, done across the US, we're trying to identify also what we call incidental findings. So in three to five years, we're hoping to see this in multiple verticals, in neuro, uh, neurovascular, vascular, cardiology, oncology, supporting acute care workflows, supporting non-acute care workflows, um, supporting patient uh, journeys from beginning to end, and not only in small segments of that. And, you know, when people say, when people ask me about that, I say, what, what, I can tell you what, what I wish for. I wish that in five years' time, the key KPI that we're seeing in front of our eyes is the percent of patients around the world who are touched by this AI. The goal of, you know, essentially, eventually, Growing this towards 100%. That is a great path to be on. And the numbers you mentioned and the KPI that you're targeting there, that makes it very clear your impact so far and the impact you're trying to achieve. That communicates it very well. David, this has been great. Your team is doing some great work with diagnostics. Where can people find out more about you online? So we have a website, uh, www.viz.ai. Um, lots of updates there, press releases, and also, of course, the career page with um, you know, job openings. We're hiring all across, uh, all across the world, all across the company. And that's, I guess, the best place. And if you want to uh, you know, be in touch, LinkedIn is a good place. Um, search, I'm happy to connect on LinkedIn and correspond there. Um, yeah, I guess that, that these are the best ways to get in touch. Okay, perfect. 
Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Heather. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI.